Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to dig our teeth into assessment, best practices of of occupational uh, therapy, really aligning assessment with treatment. We're going to be talking about, you know, innovation in assessment and how to get access to these kinds of assessments so that we can actually really steer and direct better care for people in community, whether, you know, remote or in clinic or anywhere in between. You know, we're very, very excited to be joined by Tracy uh, Milner from the Highmark Group of Companies, which is inclusive of brain effects, which we're going to be digging a lot into today, but also, you know, complex injury and kind of everything in between. So Tracy, I want to thank you so, so much for joining us today and, and sharing with our listeners today, a lot of insight about, you know, really assessment and how do we get good assessment and how does that assessment enable us to treat uh, those that we serve better from the lens of not just occupational therapy, but really all therapists out there. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And it's certainly an area of significant passion for me. So I'm excited to have the conversation about it today. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, for people that listen to the Brain Mastery podcast, it is what we say it is. It, It The topic is Brain Mastery. And what that means is how do the people that listen to this learn about what they can do to really optimize their own brain health? right? So our listeners are typically, you know, professionals in the space, but they're also individuals looking for answers, trying to better understand how to improve their lives or the lives of a loved one. You know, they're, they're oftentimes we hear from researchers that are out there in the space, uh, trying to connect with other researchers and providers. When you think about your lens, again, for our listeners, Tracy is really someone who it has, a, has a strong action bias. That's a really exciting thing. Because what that means is she, she's a doer. She's a deep thinker, but she's also a doer. And she'll be sharing some of that story with us today about how that's really steered her career and helped her to develop technologies that are really helping so many people really around the world. So for our listeners out there, keeping in mind that Tracy is an occupational therapist by training, what in the world of brain health, what was the main message that you would want to share with listeners out there today, given this topic? Well, and I think you started off the conversation well by explaining, you know, that striving for brain mastery is something that we are all still learning about because neuroscience is still a science that's in its infancy where we're still learning so much. There's so much to discover. And that's why as researchers, clinicians, and people with loved ones, we're all after understanding what's happening more and I think for, for me in particular, you mentioned that I'm an occupational therapist by background. I've had the pleasure of being able to lead, oh goodness, um, multidisciplinary teams, sometimes as large as 100, sometimes as small as 10, and uh, all in this sort of complicated area of mental health and brain health. And, and you learn so much from that experience and really 
when we came to the place where we were frustrated enough to be action-oriented and to do something with the information and insights that we had learned, it was because there was a very sort of specific area that we thought was critical. And so that main message for me is the better that we can get at assessment, at gathering very pertinent information and understand that the assessment of the brain is not about just looking at one thing. The brain is complicated. It controls and is working with us and supporting us in all the things that we do from physical health to cognitive health to mental health. And I think we really need to take that whole person perspective to gather when we're doing assessment. It's not just about looking at the thing that we might be most interested in, but how can we bring all of that data and information together in a way that can still be practical or efficient. And that, you know, that's, that's more about something, the how is something we can get into, but, you know, the information that we need to gather is really expansive so that we can get those insights early on. And, and what's the main goal? The main goal is that we can figure things out. We can pick up on things that are mild. We can pick up on things early. We can ensure that we understand the thing that we're looking for well, so that we can direct and target interventions and treatment to what we discovered. And if we could do that in a precise way, and if we could do that in a personalized way, I mean, those are the two big things that are important, I think, for those of us who are looking to help and what I think our clients, our patients want from us too. 100%. And, you know, I applaud you and your team. I know you're not, you've got a great team with you too, for taking this on because that's a big, that's a big mission. You know, that's a, that's a lot. And uh, anyone that's listening to this, you're, you're probably listening along, nodding along. It's a lot to take on uh, a quest that that large, but it's really needed and something that, you know, you and I have talked about and also other members Certainly. of your team. Uh, when I first got into this work, I was in more of the education sector, but getting these referrals from occupational therapists like yourselves who right. were finding fighting tooth and nail to find the right kind of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary assessments. And then once finding cognitive dysfunction, trying to better understand how to pair that up. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I really applaud you. And we'll get into it a little bit later about what you created because it's an Mm -hmm. awesome thing. But when you think about that process, what was it that was so challenging when you, because I hear from so many occupational therapists, okay, so I've got this profile, we're post-stroke, we're eight months, this is the assessment I'm going to use because I'm concerned about his ADLs and his ability to return to work. And this person is post-concussion syndrome, and they're now at 18 months, two failed return to schools, and mental health is going downhill. Uh, well, what kind of assessment do I use for this one? And oh, oh and, and this is a kid trying to return to school, and, and, and this kid has a seizure disorder, and what kind of assessment do I use that's kind of brain-based and reliable? Maybe help our listeners to better understand <laughs> what was that like? Well, I mean, I think you're hitting it right on the head there, which is um, it's a very eclectic approach that different clinicians have to this process of assessing different aspects of the person and the things that they need to do and how Mm -hmm. that connects to what they want to do in life, whether that's school or work and so forth. But then how do we measure that in a way that is going to be valid and reliable and gets us the information that we need? And one of the drivers for us is one of my favorite quotes is actually the the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And what that means is we might just not have the right tools yet to see it, right? So, and I tell this little story when I'm teaching um, about the elephant and the flea. And I'm like, if you look at the window and you don't see an elephant, you can conclude, yes, there's no elephant out there. But if I told you there was a flea out there, 
and you didn't see the flea, you couldn't reliably conclude that there wasn't a flea outside. You just didn't have the tools to see that it was there. And that's where we really sort of struggled when it came to detecting milder dysfunction. So we know that people have a significant range of cognitive abilities. Some of them are the ones that most of us can do really well. And then there's the ones that are more complicated. But those complicated skills we often need to do for the things that we do in our life, right? Because those are the skills that we've learned how to use for our jobs that we're using in school, that we're using to negotiate the things that we love to do in life. But oftentimes the struggle we had was that a lot of our tools were about measuring you at the point where not where compared to everybody, you couldn't do a certain thing. And that often meant you had to lower that bar of ability down to the point where it wasn't personalized to you anymore. It wasn't that you started to decline or something changed for you. It was that we could now compare you to something that everybody's supposed to do that you can't do. And for us, that's too late. And a really great clinical example of that is um, I had a gentleman post-concussion, really high functioning, you know, very successful in his career. He was a day trader. He came to me and he said, listen, Tracy, I can tell you that post-concussive, I haven't research, I haven't returned to normal. And here's my flow chart to show you. And he showed me the analytics of his performance wow. <laughs> on how he was doing at work previously to how he was now doing. He's like, you'll see here that there's a 20% uh, decrease. And there's, there's something in here that's, I can't go back to performing to the level I was. And I said, interesting. Now, if I had ran him through our traditional battery of tools, he would have come out normal. He would have looked right. like he was functioning just like everybody else. Well, it turns out we we run him through again, and we'll chat a little bit more about the things that we created to pick up on milder dysfunction. Turns out he's got a visual perceptual and processing speed issue that we're mm. able to discover. And he's looking at this huge screen and he's trying to make decisions based on numbers moving quickly and having to process that information quickly. And we're like, ah, here it is. Here's why. And then you can sit and then you can be like, okay, well, now we know what the path is in terms of what we need to do next. Um, but if you don't measure well, if you don't, if you don't have something that can pick up on those things, then you can never get to the best treatment because you just you couldn't see it. It was the absence of evidence that was there, but we needed to be able to get the right tools to be able to see it because it turns out people also won't fund treatment and intervention if you can't show that there's something going on. And so in order to get the referral that gets you to the right treatment that can be funded, whether that's publicly, whether that's through private insurance and so mm -hmm. forth, you need to be able to show something reliably and with objectivity. And that was our struggle too. I didn't want to send him back out and not treat him because I couldn't see him, couldn't see what was going on for him. And that's what we saw happening okay. for a lot of our clients. That uh, makes a lot of sense. And it's such a big issue out there. And when we, this is why I love chatting with you. I always like to look at, you know, other fields, you know, when we think about other specific conditions that might be out there, things like heart disease and that kind of stuff, but, you know, we can run a panel, you know, and we can better understand. I, I love what you said about the elephant and the flea, because the technologies are getting to a point where we can really better understand and unpack that even from relatively basic blood tests and more sophisticated blood tests that are coming out now. And that can really help us to better understand what kind of food should we eat? What kind of lifestyle habits should we make? What are our risks for this or that or that? Wonderful. It's time though on the behavioral side. This is why I just love what you do. On the behavioral side, what else can we do? But how do we better understand? We need to better understand our baseline prior to the treatment. 
And it's been in, in the world that I'm in, and you know me, I'm much more on kind of the, the rehabilitation technology side. That's where we also connect. But I love the idea of getting better, standardized, normed, valid, brain-based assessments. We need this and we need it now. Well, completely. I mean, we get annual physicals. So yeah. why aren't we getting annual cognitives, annual mental health? Like it yeah. needs to be annual health exam, you know, exams. Not Quarterly. just Quarterly. not just not just physical pieces. We need to be able to see those. And if something happens or if there's a change for us, we need to be able to rerun that and compare to baseline. The best data that we can get for someone is to compare them to themselves. And so the real exciting part, I think, for where we can get to to be more precise and personalized is to be able to better understand how a person functions and fluctuates over the course of what life is like for them. And then ask that question, because if you're able to achieve a certain level of ability at a certain skill and that starts to decline, well, we need to ask ourselves, why is it declining? Is it that we have a physical health issue that's influencing it? Is it that there's a mental health issue that's influencing it? Are we seeing cognition going down because we have mental health or physical challenges? So it's looking at, at those pieces and that earliest point for intervention and likely our best opportunity for success is to be able to find it at that point. But to get there requires a lot of strong assessment. It requires asking the right questions, having the right tools, and then being able to take all of that data and information and distill it down in a way that is actually insightful and easy and consumable for our health professions to interpret and make next step clinical decisions. Love it. A hundred percent. And so, and I know you're not kind of a, a blatant self-promoter. That's just not in your DNA, <laughs> but, but I'm going to push you there a little bit because you know, what you have created with your team is an assessment tool that's, that's really gaining a lot of traction. And I hear it a lot in my space and I didn't connect the dots initially because I know you from a clinical lens as well. But, you know, you you and your team did create a really exciting tool aimed at this. And I'm wondering how that connects with what you want to see in the future of brain health. So I'm, I'm, it's kind of twofold. Tell us a little bit about yeah. this technology. Maybe lead with what you want to see in the future, if you don't mind. And then tell us a little bit more about this technology. Well, I mean, certainly what I'd like to see in the future, and this actually connects to another hat that I wear. So I'm a, a PhD student at the University of Alberta concurrently with everything that I do. And what am I doing? Analyzing big data sets to look at how we can create clinical decision tools in terms of this space for brain health. And my immediate interest is particularly in the changes of decline of, of aging and cognition and so forth. But so, so that's sort of what do I want to see? I want us to be able to have assessments that are not just point of care assessments, but really create a movie of what our cognitive brain health and physical health is like. So that's actually pairing what we call remote monitoring. So being able to assess while you go about your life um, at the same time that you do your point of care assessments with your, your clinicians as well. And ideally, now you've got a story. It's like a movie that you've had been able mm -hmm. to watch because you can see all that data now as a clinician. You've got that much more to interpret that, you know, that we have the, then the ability to see where exactly things are changing for someone. What can we recommend? What can we promote? Where's the best next strategy? But also, I mean, the big hope would be 
sort of how we just spoke about is that everybody would be able to set their own baseline, to be able to set that, to be able to collect that in a way that that's just part of what we do, that we move away from this sort of reactive medicine model and look at how we start with prevention, how we promote early detection. And we have to do that through things that are efficient and consumable and easy to use and adopt. So that sort of segues into where we started back in 2012 with our big clinical frustration. And we said, okay, well, let's let's go buy this assessment that we're going to go get because it's going to measure milder dysfunction. It's going to be connected to real life. It's going to be measuring more. It's not going to miss the physical and psychosocial and sensory things. we got to get that whole picture. Okay, where's that thing we're going to buy? We didn't find it. So we created it years and years <laughs> in the process of validating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting it to the point of commercialization mm-hmm. and getting it Health Canada cleared and so forth. And that's where we started with this comprehensive assessment that used to take us like six to eight hours to gather this type of information. Mm-hmm. And even then, you know, the next clinician would come along and do a whole different different set of tests, right? So you can never really compare apples to apples or track that over time. So we said, what if we don't put all that information back into file folders that we wrote out on with our paper and pencil tools? What if we actually could bring all that information into our living brain bank, which is what we called it? Because at the time there was a lot of talk about brain banks, especially in sport. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. <laughs> you know, we're going to yeah. wait until the person yeah. is is Especially dead. <laughs> around CTE and that sort of stuff. Right? Been a that's lot of exactly what that. was going yeah. on. Yeah. And we're like, we're going to wait until then to be able to measure what's going on. No, we can't help them then, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when we were seeing some really um, significant personality changes, mental health mm-hmm. changes that were coming from that. And, and sometimes those ended quite tragically. And I just, you know, for me, I was like, we should have been able to see that sooner. We should, would have, should have had a way to be able to see that those things were changing. And so we developed our first digital assessment that was tablet-based. It's a 90-minute assessment, looks at 30 cognitive skills, but it asks you about your physical health. It brings in psychosocial. Mm-hmm. So it's asking about your mental health. It even asks your family and friends to provide their perspectives. Whoa. So it's so comprehensive. And still fairly efficient given the amount of information you get. I think it's something over 10,000 data points are created in that 90 minutes. Wow. And then you're able to compare that to others who are similar to you, right? And then from there, we became, we had a briefer screen that was tablet-based. COVID happened. We delivered a virtual assessment that could be done just over Zoom, like we're chatting through Mm -hmm. now. And then we partnered with EQ and Highmark, uh, which eventually would go on to acquire both of the businesses and practices I had, which was Brain Effects and uh, Complex Injury Rehab. They also had a, a healthcare clinic. So we were now blending clinical, mm. clinical experts with technology under the same umbrella. And then they had patient monitoring uh, remote assessments. So then you could actually collect that information just from your smartphone while you're at home. And now we had that sort of that whole wrap around to care. What would I love to see? I mean, there's so much more we're excited about doing different layers and different tech that we can add in there. But we started at a place where we could create standardization. We started at a place where we could then have reliability between what clinicians were doing and that we could give them clinically useful information that was going to be actionable and connect to treatment and intervention. That's so great. And now I understand more why we were connected is, you know, our visions align. Our missions are slightly different, but our visions are so, so connected. 
And congratulations for doing what that's extremely hard. Um, it, it has been what, extremely hard. What yes. you are telling us <laughs> is a very, very challenging hill to climb, but a very worthy one. And we were just talking before we hit record, you know, it's kind of when we're in this work, sometimes it just feels like it's just never stopping. And, and that's probably a good thing because so many people out there, that's what I know probably motivates you is, is that person that finally got that better understanding. It's that, it's that, you know, day trader finally being able to, to have the validation that yes, you're not quite where you are yet. And here's a validated assessment that we did with you over the course of 90 minutes to help you to better understand that you're right. There's some level of validation there. And then this is the part that I love so much and you do as well clinically with the opportunity to do something about it. You know, I mean, it's so, it's so rewarding to hear a people be validated because when they don't get picked up on other traditional tests that can't measure those, that milder dysfunction. And I always say milder with a bit of hesitation Mm. because mild can still mean profound disability. It can still mean profound dysfunction. It can still be something that really prevents you from doing the things that are important and meaningful to you in life. It's still that differentiator, but if you can't, if you can't see it and people keep telling you you're fine, but you know, you're not fine. I mean, not only do you uh, better understand what's actually going on. The fact is, is that it can be connected to a plan and that plan, having a plan and having a pathway provides hope and hearing the stories of how people have improved and how they've used that information to help them get back to the things they love to do. I mean, that's, that's what gets you up and gets you through all the bustle of everyday life um, when you have a mission that's so big, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, full disclosure, we do some, a little bit of work together, our two organizations because of this, this vision that we share. And, uh, and it's so exciting because we're just getting started (laughs) and it's really exciting. And because we think about the people that are out there right now struggling, so many don't yet know, most don't yet know that there's something that they can do. There's an assessment they can access easily in community. And then if we find that there's many different ways that one can actually improve their cognitive function. And that's the piece for me that really sticks out is it upsets me because so many people are still in that fixed mindset of, well, it's been a while and there's not much we can do for me, maybe other people, but not me. And just helping people to better understand through good assessment, this is where you're at. Yes, there is an issue or in some cases, Actually, there's not as profound of an issue as you, as you may have thought. Um, and here are some things that you can actually do yourself. And that's so great for the self-efficacy, the intrinsic motivation of that individual to say, you have an option, you have a choice, you can do something about it or you cannot. But ultimately, the baton is in your hand and you have informed choice. And that's my biggest thing is to have options. You know, that is my Absolutely. number one Well, and I think what's, what's really cool about what we hear too is because the way that we present information back to clinicians and to, to the people who are taking the assessments is to show them where their strengths are, as well as their areas of challenge. And most tests in this area are about telling you what's wrong with you. For some of our clients, especially for some of the people who are, are struggling from a mental health perspective, I mean, some of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time feedback that we've received is they're like, this is the first time somebody's telling me what's right about me. I didn't know mm-hmm. that I was good yeah. at this. 
I didn't know that, that, you know, this was a strength for me. And when we, and we, we often think about treating the dysfunction, but at the same time as clinicians, we have to emphasize and leverage the strengths because sometimes dysfunction can take longer. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a harder road. Sometimes there's not the appetite for that long road, but if we can understand strengths, we can also understand how can we work around things or how can we compensate for things? And and I mean, that's, that it was such a reflection on our healthcare system to hear feedback, like, wow, it's the first time I've been heard something's right Mm -hmm. with me. And I was like, wow, we need to remember that every day. We need to remember that every day when we're practicing. Yeah, I love that. When you think about the healthcare system, and yes, it's far from perfect, and you think about the world of brain health and your lens in, in occupational medicine, what is one area or maybe two areas that frustrate you the most? Hmm. So, I mean, I think the frustrating piece is, and it depends on the different lenses. So let's, let's go from a clinical lens for an example, mm-hmm. you know, sort of depending on where you practice from. I think one of the things that is frustrating for me is the assumption that being able to gather information about brain health should be fast and really easy. So the more we can gather information, the more that from, you know, we can bring insights together for clinicians. Yes. But I'll often be like, oh, you know, I don't have time for a 30 minute test in my practice, but I want to learn everything about the brain and I still need to treat them. But could we do this? And like, do you have something that's about a minute or so? And I think that narrow perspective of, of hoping that there's just like this fast way of understanding, you know, an, an organ that is responsible for all the things it's responsible for is, is narrow and that's frustrating. I think also the view that potentially there's nothing that can be done if you're detecting milder dysfunction um, or detecting earlier. And I, I mean, there's a lot of literature that's upcoming that, that is demonstrating the opposite of that. But I do think that for um, a number of clinicians that can still be like, well, I don't know how to fix that. Or I don't think there's anything that can be done because there's no pill, there's no cure, there's, there's not all these pieces that they forget that rehabilitation has a lot to offer, both in terms of looking at how you could potentially remediate, how you could potentially compensate, um, and how you can educate to promote better quality of life. I would say those are, those are sort of the the key pieces and and the need to focus on real world outcomes to really sort of can make the connection between the reason why we assess and the reason why we treat is because we're trying to improve something that's going to be meaningful. Something that someone needs to do or loves to do is the, is the goal to see those things improve. Or sometimes it's not that they're going to improve, but sometimes it's to minimize the decline, particularly if we're looking at something that's neurodegenerative. Yeah. I think that's so, so well said. And I'm with you. I share that. I, I, I think it's so interesting. So much of this conversation is reminding me why we were connected because it was actually at a conference at U of T where, and I, I love U of T. It's a great, best schools anywhere in the world. But I was at one of the Rotman Research Conferences looking at neuro rehab. And at this, this point, I still had my educator cap on and um, you know, sitting, listening and hearing so much around the fast and easy. Uh, with new postdocs coming up with really interesting, innovative ideas, but most of them were kind of around how do we make this a little easier, faster, you know, and which I, I get it. But in order to really drive be- long-term behavioral change, you have to work through that process. That's how it works physically. That's the only model that really drives long-term behavioral change. 
this is another conversation when we think about the implications of AI and all that sort of stuff. But so that's another one we'll do down the line. But, you know, I like that you brought that up because I think it's so important. You know, when we think about development early on, childhood development, all these sorts of things, there's this rigor, there's this process, there's this learning that takes time to slowly up capacity and then look into transfer. And so oh, I think that's absolutely. so awesome. Well, that's I always say, you know, when someone's had an injury, um, and we'll just leave that very broad or, or has had um, something that's affecting their cognitive function, it's like, well, just remember you, you took up your whole life up until this point to trailblaze that efficient route of using that cognitive skill, right? And this is sort of like looking at how the brain changes itself and neuroplasticity and all of those sort of mm. things, right? Like you've been trailblazing that pathway and making it more efficient and getting it to the point that it has been your whole life. And now something has come along in an event, whether it's an accident, an injury, or mm. or an insult to the brain, and it's changed that. It disrupted it. And now what we have to do, yes, we can build a new detour to try and get there. But the detour means that we're going to have to put time into it to get that pathway to, to get A, make the connection and B, solidify it and then work towards making it more efficient again. And it's, it's an interesting one. I wish there was a magic wand, you know, the, the magic wand question comes up, but rehabilitation, particularly for many um, ends up being something that requires a lot of, of effort and very targeted effort. But the thing Mm -hmm. is that I think is difficult is when we just see sort of broad swipes at intervention, like, just do puzzles, do some crosswords. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so cognitive stimulation and then cognitive targeted remediation are very different things. And just doing things that A, you might still be good at, you know, sandwich that in with the things that you're not good at and aren't the preferred things that you need to do, because those are the things that we need to work on. And then can we do them in a way that promotes transference to real life? Because that's where a lot of the criticism has, as you know, has come when it comes to mm-hmm. cognitive retraining is that you get really good at the thing you're training on, but does it actually connect to improved life function? And so making that connection there is also very key. It's huge. And that's why I love your lens. So uh, the occupational therapy and rehab, you know, uh, kind of occupational medicine lens, it's all about function you know, and meaningful function in the activities of daily living of that individual. And then at the start, when we look at that, we look at this, why I like things like, you know, goal attainment theory, these sorts of things. Okay. What is the goal that I'm striving for and how do I compare myself to baseline? And that's actually what matters. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm a cognitive nerd. So I I always get excited when I see, you know, changes in things like fluid intelligence and, and these sorts of things, especially when they're in a population where we typically do not see any sort of change that that geeks me out. But it actually is not clinically meaningful until we see it change behavior. And that's something that, you know, I'm so excited to continue this conversation and also to work professionally together a little bit more on that because there's such a need for it. When you think about, you're so eclectic. Like, it's really cool what you do. I mean, I don't know, do you sleep? Like, like, <laughs> like, how do you do it all? <laughs> well, as we know, sleep is a critical foundational component to functioning well cognitively, which, you know, do as I say, not as I do a little bit, but um, <laughs> yeah. 
So I'm trying to, that's one of my goals for this year is to improve on, improve on that a little bit, but yeah, there's definitely life, life keeps me busy and which is means you're always looking for those efficiencies too, but you're right. Like, I mean, things that we're working on really span a range of things. I mean, there's the traditional sort of neurocognitive neuro rehabilitation things that you would think of like brain injury and neurodegeneration and so forth. But we're also uh, partnered with the Mayo Clinic looking at long COVID and looking at the impact of long COVID on cognition. You know, there's work that we're doing on chronic disease and looking at the influence of chronic disease on cognition Mm -hmm. and how do we promote that. And that's the thing is people say, well, what are you focused on when it comes to, to, you know, to the tools and to the assessment suite and so forth? It's like, well, we're trying to get an assessment of the whole person and understand what their abilities and function are. Then we can compare it back to cohorts that are things like diseases in different states, because at the end of the day, most people don't come to us and match up with what, you know, the norms were in a particular study and who the inclusion criteria was, Mm -hmm. you know, they're on a different medication that was excluded. They have comorbidities that make them different. Their age potentially doesn't match exactly. And so you have to really see the person in front of you. And if we can get really good at collecting data across a very diverse group of people and not just, you know, diverse and it's, you know, sort of usual sense of ages and gender and education, but culturally and geographically and so forth. Well, then the idea is, can we, you know, in the absence of you having potentially a baseline, can I match you as closely as possible to people who look like you or the you that we think you might get to in the future so we can see what predictors and things we might change. But that gets okay. a little into all my AI um, that's, influence that's and super interest. exciting. <laughs> One, it's something we should talk about. Like, I'm, I'm very serious. After this call, you and I have to have another conversation because <laughs> it's very important. And I love the way you're thinking. When you think about your work, so whenever I'm around really inspirational and smart people, I always selfishly, but also for our, our listeners, they like this too. What are some of the greatest influences you that you've had? So this could be a teacher. This could be a book. This could be an article. Like for me, Mahai Flow. That was the first research article where I just couldn't put it down. It was at U of A. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, this explains Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, I get it, right? So it, it, t- tell me a little bit more about maybe one or two uh, influences. You know, I, I would say that one of the biggest influences for me came when I realized that I wanted to be an occupational therapist and not take sort of some of the other traditional medicine or rehabilitation route. And one of the things that really inspired me from the field of occupational therapy was the ability to look at the person from so many different lenses and be sort of the detective and try mm-hmm. to figure out how to promote somebody's independence and function. So a lot of my inspiration of in lens of how I look at a person and how it connects to the things that they need and want to do just comes so innately from the passion that I have there. And I think that the next place would be a lot of the work through neuroplasticity. And I mentioned before, like, you know, Dr. Doidge and the, you know, the brain that changes itself and so forth. And some of that literature has been, you know, it just really speaks to, to, to that piece as well. Um, but I'd say also all the work that's happening um, when it comes to artificial intelligence and healthcare. Um, one of my keen interests right now is in, in digital biomarkers and really looking at that set of information and how those can be used. And so that's that's a significant place uh, for me. But I would say that the biggest inspiration comes from my colleagues and the things that I see them struggling with and the things that I see them being inspired by. And then I think the other place is my family, because there isn't something 
that we do that you don't typically see touched on in your family, whether that's somebody going through a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or early cognitive change or concussion or a kid struggling with, you know, learning disability and so forth. And you just see how much it connects to not just how you see them in a point in time as a clinician, but how it permutates and sort of connects to all aspects of life. And you realize that the thing that's inspiring, how you can make life a better place because you've been here is to see if you could make life more meaningful, more that they can reach the goals that they're looking for in life by something that you've done. So great. So for people that are listening, they've heard this uh, interview. Uh, thank you for staying with us all the way through you know, this conversation. And you know, please, please, please share this episode. We covered a lot of topics, but I think this message could really resonate with a lot of people. I want to thank Tracy for her time, but please, please download this episode, share it. It's a super important message, especially given today's times, you know, please, please share it. For people that are out there, they're listening, they want to learn more, they want to get engaged, they want to do a 90-minute test, they want to understand, they want their cognitive, physical. How do we get a hold of you? How do we reach you? How do we support your work? Uh, please let the listeners know. Oh, that would be fabulous. So highmarkinteractive.tech is our website, connects to all the clinical practices and the suite of assessment tools. Um, I'm sure we'll link that in the, the podcast. That'll be in the notes. But I'm Tracy at highmark.tech. And that's how you can reach me directly too. If you have a question and I'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. If you're an interested researcher, we are constantly in research doing some sort of, you know, a handful of studies at any given time. If you're a clinician and you'd like to learn more about how to bring it to your practice, or if you're someone who thinks this might be for me, I need this, or I have a loved one who could benefit, please reach out. Um, We would love to be able to connect you. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. I know you're extremely busy and, uh, you know, just keep, keep on your quest. Uh, I I'm sure you're transforming lives and, uh, and having a lot of fun while doing it. So thanks again for your time and we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the brain mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. A training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neural rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. 
The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.